Let me talk for a moment uh, about Medicaid and some changes. Our goal in Ohio is to keep as many people as healthy as possible and to ensure those that get sick with COVID-19 that they get the treatment that they need. That certainly includes uh, reducing barriers to care. Medicaid. Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. As we've talked about on this show extensively over the past several episodes, the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the good, the bad, and the ugly of the American healthcare system. And this is no less true here in Ohio than it is around the country. While we've celebrated the good work of our first responders, this good work was often done against the odds created by the system itself. The problems that the coronavirus has laid bare for us to see include the unsustainability of how we fund and source our healthcare institutions, including hospitals, the vulnerability of our healthcare workforce, as we discussed on last week's episode with the good folks from the Ohio State Nursing Program, and the persistent disparity, especially racial and ethnic disparity in health outcomes. One place this all comes together is in Ohio's Medicaid program, and on today's episode we're going to be talking about Medicaid with my friend and OU colleague Lauren Anthes. Longtime Prognosis Ohio listeners will remember Lauren from an episode we did more than a year ago, and I was thrilled that he agreed to take some time to talk with us again. Medicaid is a lifeline, and I mean that literally, in Ohio's healthcare social safety net. Medicaid is a lifeline not only for individuals falling below or near the poverty line, but for pregnant women, infants and children, many older adults, and individuals with disabilities. In Ohio, Medicaid covers one in six adults, three out of every eight children, three in five nursing home residents, one in three people with disabilities, and one in six Medicare beneficiaries. And these data were from the pre-COVID era. With unemployment skyrocketing because of COVID-19, we expect Medicaid to play an even more critical role in helping Ohioans address their health care needs. As a result, there are some important decisions that are going to have to be made regarding Medicaid in the coming weeks and months, and we discussed some of those in our conversation. As always, before turning to my conversation with Lauren, I'd like to remind you to please subscribe to Prognosis Ohio wherever you get your podcasts and consider following us on Twitter at at Prognosis Ohio. Also, if you have ideas for show themes or interviews, please don't hesitate to email us at prognosisohio at gmail.com. As you know, we also have a Patreon account. Please consider becoming a patron and contribute a few bucks so that we can continue to grow the show, spotlighting important health and healthcare issues here in the great state of Ohio. While you're there, tell us what issues you'd like us to address or who you'd like to see on the show. Visit patreon.com slash prognosisohio to chip in three bucks a month to become a Prognosis Ohio Patreon. That's patreon.com slash prognosisohio. And thanks. Lauren Anthes serves as the William C. and Elizabeth M. Troyhoff Chair in Health Planning at the Center for Community Solutions and leads Community Solutions Center for Medicaid Policy. Anthes has significant public and private sector experience and has worked extensively with both legislative and executive branches of local, state, and federal governments. He's also, as I mentioned, my colleague, a lecturer at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, specializing in quality improvement in health systems science. Anthes holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science from OU and a Healthcare Master of Business Administration from Baldwin Wallace University. Hey, Lauren Anthes, uh, my colleague, my friend, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dan. So it's been a while since we've had you on. Um, mm-hmm. We're in a new world almost entirely since I think it was uh, 2019. So there's a lot to talk about, but specifically, we wanted to take some time to talk about Medicaid with you, mm-hmm. uh, the program in Ohio that covers one in four Ohioans, 
It's extremely important to our social safety net. Lots and lots of Ohioans depend on this program. And it's played a really important role during the the COVID-19 pandemic as well. So I guess I'll frame the conversation by saying a few weeks ago, we had on the show Julie DeRossi King from the Ohio Association of Community Health Centers. And among other things, we talked about how um, just people staying away from things like community health centers or hospitals you know, might be creating another crisis um, that we're going to have to deal with um, now that we're starting to, quote unquote, reopen the state. I guess, right. can you just, you know, w- with that in mind, talk a little bit about the the big picture of what role has Medicaid played within this? How should listeners think about the importance of Medicaid mm-hmm. at this time? Yeah. So, you know, I know Julie from her work with the community health centers for years, and and they play such a critical role just as a safety net provider. Um, but what's interesting about what she said is is just how different the environment is now in terms of our delivery system. Um, you know, I saw estimates from uh, health management associates and Moody's that talked about how many people are going to rely on Medicaid just in Ohio when it comes to their health coverage. I mean, we're seeing the economic consequences of COVID and, you know, Medicaid is one of those programs that steps in when economies are going down, right? When there are tough times, Medicaid plays a role. And so I saw something where like a quarter of people who are covered by employer-sponsored insurance are going to convert into the Medicaid program as their primary source of coverage, a quarter of folks. And so Medicaid plays a role just not only in terms of coverage, but ensuring that people have access to services and ensuring that providers like community health centers, hospitals, and others can stay financially solvent, right? So, you know, it's it's not only important just from like a a coverage standpoint, but there's a, a fiscal impact there too. And the challenge is, you know, the way that the business model of healthcare is set up in the United States, we're really reliant on a disease-based model, unfortunately. And so that means a lot of the services where hospitals and others make their money, people aren't getting those things. And, and there's mm-hmm. going to be pent-up demand. But it also means that a lot of folks you know, with chronic diseases like hypertension or diabetes or who just have more regular needs, uh, either, you know, in home-based settings or nursing facility settings, um, they are not getting the services they need either. Uh, The difference is with Medicaid, you know, you have the opportunity for government to come in to organize how insurance responds to these things and leverage its power to effectuate good public health strategies to address those issues. Um, So Medicaid plays a strategic and operational role, a financial role. It's, it's, It's huge. It's also a huge part of the state budget, of course. I mean, most state budgets, Medicaid is the biggest piece. And you're at this time where, you know, I mean, it's this perfect storm or this perfectly bad storm to mix that metaphor <laughs> of, you know, mass unemployment, mm-hmm. um, less money coming into the state you know, through the tax base, and also more and more people dependent on that system. So it creates yeah. this kind of pressure point, And we're seeing that now. Yeah, you know, um, th- Medicaid has this reputation as being the, this program that eats more and more of the state budget. But, you know, I want to I just challenge that a little bit by saying it depends on how you count those dollars, right? Yeah. So Medicaid is a state and federal partnership. And when you look at the state-only resources that have been obligated to Medicaid, it's been about the same for a really long time. Um, it's the federal resources and the increase of the federal resources that has changed. And we can see actually since, you know, the um, late 90s and early 2000s, um, when Speaker Householder was last speaker, 
uh, a big shift in using state resources to address common public health issues to relying on Medicaid. We have quote unquote medicated things, which basically means that we're just shifting the obligation to the federal government. The important thing to think about too is, you know, this is not the first time this has happened. We faced recessions in other, you know, eras, uh, you know, most notably and most recently with the Great Recession. But, you know, Medicaid has consistently helped states and helped our country weather the storm of recessions. Yeah, and to be clear, I'm not I'm not joining the chorus of oh my god, Medicaid you know needs to be shut down because oh no no the state budget. I mean, my my point was to say it's so important to our state. It's it's just, it's literally a lifeline. I mean, when when Governor Kasich took on his own party to expand Medicaid uh, mm-hmm. back in 2014, you know, he called it a matter of life and death, and we have data showing that that appears to be true. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, I think too, people don't realize just how important it is to um, protect the state from financial collapse. I mean, you know, here's one thing that's interesting, right? When Medicaid comes in and and plays a role, steps up to cover people, it does a bunch of things. Not only does it ensure that people have access to services when they need them, uh, but it also protects employer-sponsored insurance, right? Because if you're a payer, you're you're an insurance provider and you know the hospital who is now faced with higher rates of uninsured is trying to deliver services if medicaid isn't there to cover those people well then they're going to figure out a way to get paid and the easiest way to get paid is to go back to that private insurer and say hey we're going to increase our rates because we need to to make up that loss um, you see this in looking at expansion states versus non-expansion states. Employer-sponsored insurance premiums are lower in expansion states than non-expansion states for this exact reason. Um, so, you know, it helps businesses keep their premiums lower. And I think that that has been shown to be the case uh, just with expansion, but it's going to play a role significantly right now uh, because expansion is going to take on a lot of the lives of folks who may have lost their employer-sponsored insurance. Um, there's also a lot of federal resources that come into the economy because of that source of coverage. I mean, without it, uh, we're talking about um, services not being able to be paid at all, people not being able to get tests. So, you know, I, I, I think it's, it can't be understated just how important these resources are to help states um, manage their caseloads, their increased caseloads. And there's a lot of iterative research to show that it actually accelerates economic recovery because it's additional stimulus that has a direct impact in a state like Ohio, whose healthcare industry is so pronounced in terms of jobs you know, that without it, without that source of coverage, without those resources, uh, you'd have to see contraction. You'd have to see cuts. You'd have to see job loss. That's the only other option. Yeah. And when, when people, you know, diss Medicaid, they don't really, like, I kind of dare them to live in the world they're playing with because they don't realize, or they're not acknowledging if they do realize the floor that Medicaid creates, the way in which it creates these preconditions that economic activity. And, right. You know, just economic and social life are kind of built atop of that. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of the thing that like is interesting to me is this conversation around who Medicaid covers and and what it does. Um, You know, the folks who are a part of expansion, let's say, or, um, you know, who are politically unpopular in terms of what Medicaid does, that's not where the money goes. 
Not really. The money goes to folks with disabilities. It goes to kids. It goes to older adults. And let's just talk about this in the context of COVID. Who are the folks who are most susceptible to the impacts of the virus? Well, it's folks in long-term care. Right, it's folks with yeah. um, you know immune-based diseases, which you know Medicaid might be playing a role. That also means then, when you don't provide adequate coverage through Medicaid, if you don't guarantee that it's there as a resource, that it's the most likely target for cuts because that's the only place that you can make cuts and actually re- realize any sort of financial uh, benefit from that. Right, so you know the state, I think, <laughs> would be in uh, some very difficult um, places decision-wise if for some reason it decided, you know, it didn't want to accept or pursue additional federal help through the Medicaid program. Prognosis Ohio listeners know that we try to shine some light on good work being done to promote health and support those doing good work in our communities, especially this week with the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis at a time when African-Americans and other people of color were already disproportionately getting sick and dying from COVID-19. The health disparities within the African-American community need our urgent attention and support. The Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition's vision is to achieve health parity for the African-American population. I encourage you to please take some time to read about the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition's many important initiatives, and if you can, consider making a donation. To read more and to donate, visit neoblackhealthcoalition.org. That's neoblackhealthcoalition.org. Or just go to the link that we've included in our show notes at wcbe.org, and you can connect there. Thanks. So let's talk about that additional federal help. So right now, Congress is discussing a policy that would increase the federal share, um, the so-called FMAP, mm-hmm. um, for paying for Medicaid uh, until, you know, and, and the, I guess the plan is to increase that just until unemployment starts to go back down. Yeah. Maybe you could just give us the the 50,000 foot view about what that would mean for Ohio if we were to get more federal money into that program. Yeah. So, you know, during the Great Recession, our general revenue decreased by nearly $3 billion, And that was because of, you know, decreased economic activity. And with the stimulus package, we saw an increase of about $3.5 billion during the recession just through Medicaid. And what was interesting about that is if you look at the numbers in the state budget, the direct state contribution to the Medicaid program actually went down while they covered a few more hundred thousand people. So can you do the math for me on that? I mean, how how does that work? Yeah. So um, for every dollar that gets spent in Medicaid, um, a certain percentage comes from the state and a certain percentage comes from the federal government. And that percentage, known as the Federal Medical Assistance Percentage or FMAP, is based off of uh, basically the average income in a state. What's what's the poverty situation like? So in a state like California, which has a really robust economy, you know that that rate is lower. Where in a state like Mississippi, where poverty rates are really high, that rate mm-hmm. is much higher. So the federal government kicks in much more money. So that rate in Ohio is roughly around 63%. That means 63 cents out of every dollar come from the federal government. And even then, the 37 cents that we're talking about, a lot of that comes from fees or assessed to to nursing facilities, assessed to hospitals. So really only one out of $5 spent in Medicaid actually come from state general revenue. During the recession, the FMAT number was increased okay by 6% and yeah. in a in a net sense it looked more like 10%. So that that meant that 70 cents or so 
out of every dollar actually came from the federal government. And so when you do that, that means that you displace what would have been the state's obligation to cover those services with federal resources. And when caseloads increase in the hundreds of thousands, which is what has happened and what we expect to happen, probably close to a million people will enroll in Medicaid by the end of the calendar year, new enrollees. Those resources provide a significant resource to states and then don't require the states to make other harder choices, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you don't have those federal dollars come through, your options are cut benefits, cut services, cut rates, right? Or borrow from other programs like education and corrections, you know, and there's only so much money to go around. So when this happened during the Great Recession, we saw this number, the 60% to 70% shift represent about three and a half billion dollars as the state saw a loss of revenue from taxes around $3 billion. So that meant that they didn't have to cut education, they didn't have to cut services, and they could cover more lives. It also meant that you had this influx of federal resources going through a really important industry so that the economic output helped us recover more quickly than would have been the case otherwise. So right now, Congress is discussing this because they've already passed this through the Families First Coronavirus Response Act but only in a temporary way during the national emergency. So we've already seen an increase in FMAP from that bill. But the moment the national emergency ends, those resources end as well. So that means, and we've we've been hearing that the national emergency might end soon, right? Because it depends on the president. <laughs> well, I mean, if I walk around the streets here in Columbus, it seems like it's over because there's a lot of beer pong and there's a lot of uh, <laughs> cor- cornhole tournaments. Like, yeah, I mean, the pandemic over, I guess. Yeah, we won. We solved it. Um, Except that uh, cases and deaths here in Franklin County are actually going up at the same time that that's happening. I mean, there, there's this just incredibly disorienting thing happening, but that's a little bit tangential. Yeah, it's well, I mean, and that's the thing, like the national emergency declaration relies on, you know, the president invoking the Stafford Act powers to do so. Mm. And so Congress has this decision before them. Senator Portman in particular has incredible power over the future of the state budget, because if the Senate doesn't pass something that uh, increases FMAP, and the proposal as is right now says basically it's it's temporary until the unemployment gets back to like 5%, which is rational, right? Mm-hmm. It's not even saying increase it forever. It's saying do it until like the economy rebounds. You know, so now they're, they're, we're talking about a, a program and a decision that's before the Senate as to whether or not to do this, whether or not to provide these resources to states. And I saw something from Moody's Analytics that did a stress test on state budgets. And they're saying- yeah, I saw that as well. Yeah. yeah so $6.8 billion in Ohio is the, is the potential height of this stress test. And so, you know, let's say that the rainy day fund's what, 2.7 billion? Okay, well, you got a lot of money to make up in that conversation. There's estimates from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which says that the congressional FMAP policy is worth four some billion dollars. So if you pass that, you can use that and the rainy day fund, and you can balance your budget without having to cut education, without having to cut a source of coverage, right? Without having to cut benefits for key populations like older adults in nursing facilities. It's it's going to be so. And the thing that I think is why I'm so like jazzed up about it is you know just today I saw Mitch McConnell, Senator McConnell, say um, this is the last co- coronavirus legislation that we're going to discuss. So you know it's now or never. 
And yeah. and unless we want a crisis come next year during our budget, Senator Portman and Senator Brown have to advocate for this increase. They have to make sure that it has strong protections for older adults and the disabled, and it needs to happen right now. So you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Senator Rob Portman has uh, a lot to say about the future of Ohio's state budget. Absolutely. Okay, so let's turn to something that, you know, everybody, I, I swear, on this podcast, I've had, uh, I think, um, four out of the five um, most recent episodes. At some point in my interview, it turns to telemedicine. There's mm-hmm. people talking about telemedicine a lot, and I don't say that to downplay it. It's a really important thing, but it's just kind of an interesting moment where everybody's really jazzed about that. We had Representative Thomas West on the uh, on the show. Right. You know, I mentioned the discussion with the Ohio Association of Community Health Centers. Um, but there was also a hope that not just telemedicine, but that other kind of reforms, other changes to services um, would be maybe coming through this, you know, so-called uh, the relaxing of some of the regulatory structure around Medicaid through mm-hmm. waivers. Mm-hmm. Um, is telemedicine the big story or are there other stories that um, need to be thought of as well as things that are changing in response to this crisis um, in the area of Medicaid that are not telemedicine? Yeah, I think so. You know, telemedicine definitely plays a role and I think people are excited about it because let's 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 get a little bit businessy wonky. Anytime you don't need someone to come to a physical space, you're you're potentially saving money on that fixed cost. And so from a, a broad scale economic standpoint, um, you know, that's definitely part of it. And there are some details there about who has access, who does not, what what the therapeutic benefit is versus not, you know, so I think that there's a lot of detail in that conversation that needs to be had and that there's research around, et cetera. But, you know, the state has, um, and many states have, pursued a number of regulatory relaxations, if you will, um, through waivers, through amendments to their contracts with managed care, where they, you know, suspended things like eligibility checks, and they suspended things like uh, fees for applications, where they empowered you know, family members to be paid to take care of uh, loved ones who normally receive nursing services through home and community-based service waivers. I think a lot of those conversations are are worthwhile having, you know, whether it's why is it that Ohio, you know, was up until this crisis seeing the most amount of children disenroll from the program? Well, it was because the eligibility system was kicking them out. And now we're seeing this eligibility system sort of on pause because we have opened up the system to let people in so that they can get access to services if they get sick or because, you know, they lose their insurance. And so I think that's there's something to be learned from that, right? Um, how do we make it easier for people to access government? And I think that's a lesson that we've also learned in unemployment insurance, right? It's, it, was, it was funny to me watching the press conferences and seeing like, you know, these um, elected officials go like, we didn't know the system was so messed up. And I was like, well, a lot of other people did, right? So I think there's something to be learned about like the way that we bureaucratize eligibility systems, well, I know you're a, a first and foremost a policy wonk. Uh, yeah. At least that's how I think of you. Oh, thanks. Um, but um, a political dimension of this, you know, obviously when you're talking about deregulation, yeah, or when you're talking about relaxing eligibility checks, 
there's a politics to that. As soon as you say relaxing eligibility checks, I hear my there's fraud, there's fraud alert go off, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I've been thinking about this and maybe you can, I don't know, definitively answer this question for me that I haven't been able to answer, which is, are these things we're doing just like smart things that we should have been doing all along and we're doing them because we're in the middle of an emergency mm-hmm. or is this changing the policy landscape permanently? I mean, I would imagine, especially some of the conservative critiques of things like you know, relaxing eligibility um, checks or um, making, you know, reducing barriers or, you know, we were having a discussion just a few months ago about co-pays for Medicaid. We were having yeah. a discussion just a few months ago about work requirements for Medicaid, which is totally impossible when you have mass unemployment like we have right now. So, I mean, how do we think about like this moment we've been through and what we will be doing in the long run? Are these things here to stay? I don't think they're here to stay, but I think it, um, provides legitimacy to a conversation around what's appropriate and what's not and what's useful and what's not. Because we'll have evidence now, basically, about how people use healthcare when eligibility is made easy for them. Um, I mean, the, the thing is, beneficiaries, people who enroll in Medicaid, they're not the ones perpetuating fraud, right? right. I mean, you know, if you go get your knee scoped, it's not like you have like several knees to scope and that you receive a monetary benefit, right? It's it's the people who are committing fraud are providers or, you know, folks who might be engaging in unscrupulous business practices, like issuing too many prescriptions. They're not beneficiaries. They're not the ones committing fraud. And right. the other thing is the bar for entry is income. And so we're talking about people who are in poverty. We're talking about people who are lower income. I mean, one of the things that you can do to significantly limit eligibility is probably raise people's incomes. <laughs> you know, like, right, right. you know, if there was a, a, a better continuum, then I think, I think is, it would be a more meaningful activity. But I don't imagine that people will abandon the ideological basis despite whatever the evidence says. I thought we were in this together, though. Hashtag in this together. I, I, maybe I got the <laughs> wrong memo. <laughs> well, you know, it depends. I mean, it's it's tough. I, you know, I have to give credit where it's due. This is not an easy political moment for anyone, regardless of party, um, because the challenge with stuff like this is, you know, in, in public health and in, in a public health space around COVID, your success is defined by stuff that doesn't happen. And okay. so when people experience what COVID might mean to them directly, um, they might not ever experience it directly or they don't know it, right? And at the same time, we're seeing, you know, a lot of people die in certain settings and it's not, it's not tangible for them. I mean, like even just thinking about like the hundreds of more people that were hospitalized, you know, today versus a week ago, mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily elevate in people's minds, the necessity to have more nuanced conversations about the policy. But if anyone has like uh, they're like, Oh, it's just a couple hundred people. I would say, watch a video of someone being on a ventilator and ask yourself if you're comfortable then continuing to not wear a mask and just wash your hands. I mean, at what point do we say, okay, there's a systems issue here that we need to address? And at what point does ideology get put aside for data? Because yeah. it is affecting people. We know that. Um, and to not to not acknowledge that is 
it's just cognitive dissonance. I don't know how to describe it any other way. Well, funding things is different than talking about things. And, you know, yeah. I've commented, um, you know, that, you know, there was all this love as there should have been for first responders, um, for, you know, which includes grocery store workers in the frame that I'm, I'm using. Anybody who like was out there when people like me of privilege were able to stay home. Uh, and at the same time, uh, there's a difference between funding things and doing a, a, a military jet flyover uh, once in a while, you know, and, and yeah. really getting behind it and really supporting people. And I, I think about the medical students that we work with, for example, I know medical students are watching right now the PPE discussion and saying, hey, what if I were a physician and I did, I, I mean, a lot of the students I've talked to, they didn't know that was a thing. Like they just kind of assumed that we had this, you know, door you open up and a big room of masks and everything and just more than you need. And I think that was genuinely, um, you, you know, humbling, um, chastening for, for a lot of students. And also just, you know, there's a big difference between saying thank you and funding things. And I think the Medicaid discussion, uh, is, is a big piece of that. Yeah. And you know, it's, what's interesting about that is like, um, your average student, your average physician, won't feel the nuanced conversation of FMAP um, <laughs> until a point when they're being asked to be furloughed or at right. a point when patients aren't showing up to address their chronic diseases or at a point when they don't get enough N95 masks or at a point when some of the patients they see at nursing facilities in their rounds pass away from COVID. I mean, the, the obligation for the nuanced conversation happens in the halls of the legislature. And when those become shallow and ideological, as opposed to data-oriented and factual and budget-conscious, then what happens is you have the students run into a situation, the physician, the nurse, or whomever say, well, what is happening? Why isn't this adequate enough? And I, I think that's the thing. You know, Not everyone may know a COVID patient. But I think a lot of us probably know a nurse or yeah. a lab tech or a physician or someone who might work at a grocery store and have gotten laid off. And so that's when the systemic thinking has to come back in. And that's when you have to obligate your legislature to have um, harder, serious conversations that are based in the math um, because it's going to play out one way or another. And, you know, I would say if the legislature a year from now is faced with decisions about cutting Medicaid or cutting education, uh, then they weren't being conscious of what their options were because we yeah. can solve a lot of problems by being a little bit more forethoughtful. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And, um, you know, I know we'll have you back as things develop, but uh, thanks for shining some light on Medicaid. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it. And, um, you know, anytime you want some hot takes, I'm here. Some hot takes on Medicaid with Lauren Anthes. Thanks. Absolutely. Many thanks to my friend and colleague Lauren Anthes for joining us on the show. I want to mention that Lauren's going to be launching a daily Twitter update on Ohio's efforts to increase its COVID-19 testing. We'll be linking to that regularly on our social media, but check it out. You can also follow Lauren on Twitter at at Lauren Anthes. L-O-R-E-N-A-N-T-H-E-S. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by Dan Skinner and produced by Dan Skinner and Mark France. You can find show notes for this episode on WCBE's webpage at wcbe.org. It's under the Podcast Experience tab. 
Please take a minute to subscribe to Prognosis Ohio, follow us on Twitter at, at @prognosisohio, and friend us on Facebook. We've also got an Instagram account now. As always, we encourage you to email us your suggestions and your feedback at prognosisohio at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and please be well. <laughs>